I believe. Today we're going to start this new series I'm calling We Believe. And uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, all right? I've wanted that song to be sung for about two years. And I figured the only way I'm going to get it sung is to write a sermon series on We Believe, all right? And uh, just to get that song said. But I love the song because it's the Apostles' Creed and it teaches us what we should believe, the basic tenets of our faith. And so today I'm starting a sermon series entitled We Believe. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to explore what our church believes and why these beliefs matter. Now, you might be wondering, Brother Will, why in the world are you doing a sermon series on doctrine? Isn't doctrine dry and boring? <laughs> well, my first response is that I believe the most important role of preaching in this pulpit is to teach the Bible so that lives can be changed. All right? Now, I hope that our messages are interesting, but my highest goal when I preach is not to entertain you, all right? It is to teach you the Word of God so that your life can be changed. So you can be sure that this series will be firmly grounded in Scripture. And my goal over the next eight weeks is for us to better understand the core of the Christian faith, and discover how these doctrinal truths can make a difference in our everyday life. You see, I have a strong sense that we need to get a better handle on doctrine and theology. Quite frankly, Christians just really don't know what they believe, right? Not long ago, a survey was conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. And it found rampant doctrinal ignorance amongst American Christians. For example, 57% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way to eternal life. The results were so unexpected that they repeated the survey asking more specific questions. The answers were virtually unchanged. Astonishingly, about half of those surveyed believe that everyone, including atheists, would end up in, he in heaven. Now that, my friends, is an age-old heresy known as universalism. It's simply not the truth. J.I. Packer is a widely respected theologian. And Dr. Packer is so concerned about the doctrinal fog among American Christians that he used the occasion of his 80th birthday to make this statement. He said that the greatest challenge of Christianity and the church is to re-indoctrinate this generation of Christians. Now, that is a significant statement, but I really believe Dr. Packer is right. I've observed a pervasive fuzziness among Christ followers about the essentials of our faith. Friends, doctrine is not trivial. Doctrine matters because it directly impacts our behavior. What we believe determines how we behave. And so it is important. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul pleads with his young protege, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Why? Because doctrine, doctrine matters. Not every religious ideal that you're going to hear out in our world is true. 
And if we're not well grounded in the core tenets of the Christian faith, we can drift away from Christianity. I've seen it happen to countless peoples. I, people, I've even seen it happen in churches and in denominations, and I don't want that to happen to any of us. Having said all that, I want to begin with a statement about the Bible. Because today we begin with we believe the Bible. We believe this is God's Word. Here's a statement that we believe here at Kavanaugh Church. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God without error in its original writings. And it is the final authority for all Christian faith and life. Now what this means is this. All 66 books of the Bible were written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the Bible is a fully reliable and a completely trustworthy revelation of God's message to mankind. And that brings me to our verse for today, which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what the Bible says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. There are five statements I want to make about the Bible today, and the first is this. I believe in the inspiration of the Scripture. Let's look at Paul's central declaration in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is the greatest verse in the Bible on the subject of the inspiration of Scripture. Here's what he says, all Scripture, that means all of it, from cover to cover, all 66 books in your Bible, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So he says all scripture, and then he gives the description of it. It is given by inspiration of God. That six-word phrase in our English text is one word in the Greek New Testament. And it's a very important word. It is vital that we fully understand it. So I'm going to spend a, a few moments talking about it. This one word that describes what all scripture is, is one Greek word made up of two words. The first is theos, which means God. The second half of the word is from the Greek word pneuma. It is a word from which we get a lot of our English words like pneumonia. It means wind or air or breath. As a verb, it means to blow or to breathe or to exhale. Literally, this verse says, all scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, I'm up here speaking, all right? What am I doing? Well, I'm simply exhaling air out of my mouth, and with my tongue and lips, I'm forming certain sounds that are called words with my exhaled breath. And you're wondering, how much longer can he do it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's all speaking is. You're exhaling air. And so we can say about 2 Timothy 3.16, every word of the scripture has been breathed out by God. It has been spoken out by God. And you're scratching your head wondering, well, how did he do that? How did God pull that off? What is the process by which God breathed out 
the Scripture? Well, we don't have to look very far to find the answer to that because God's Word tells us how it was done in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Here's what Peter says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from his own human initiative. That simply means that this Bible is not just what certain human beings think. It's more than that. They were not just writing down their opinions. No, it goes on in verse 21 to say, No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Now this is pretty incredible. God is moving on the men who wrote the Word of God. He is speaking to them individually, and it is through their life, through the context of where they live, through their own personality, that God is breathing out His eternal Word. Now, this is pretty amazing when you, when you stop and think about it. it. This simply means that the writers of the Bible are all different, and we can tell that through their own personality and their own writings. For example, Isaiah's writings are majestic. God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He was a royal guy. I mean, he was a high-ranking official. He was very religious. We see that in his writings. Jeremiah, the prophet, on the other hand, was somewhat melancholy. He's like a whole lot of you this morning, all right? Moses writes with authority. Why? Because Moses was the man. Leader of millions. John writes with tenderness because that was his heart. Mark's style is quick and brief and to the point. Luke's style is analytical and historical. And it is in this fact that we have the miracle of the Bible. The Bible is both human and divine. It was written by human authors in their own context using their own personality. Yet every word of it was breathed out from God. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Here, here's what we believe. We believe in the, at Kavanaugh Church, we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Plenary verbal inspiration defined says this, God so moved on the minds of human authors of Scripture so as to guide them to the exact words selected, protecting them from all error and omission, yet allowing them to retain their own personalities in their writings. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, you can see that this definition of inspiration plainly implies inerrancy and infallibility in the original documents. I mean, if God himself, who is altogether perfect, superintended the writing of his word right down to the very words selected without suspending the personality and the cultural context of the human writers, then we can expect his words and his word to be perfect and without error. And that's the second statement I make about the Word of God. Let's talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. I, I know that Jesus felt that way about God's Word. Uh, let's look and see what Jesus himself said about Scripture. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is in this conflict with the devil. In fact, Jesus is duking it out with the devil on Satan's own turf. 
in the wilderness. Remember what's happening here? Let me just read it to you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, the devil said, If you are the Son of God, why don't you command these stones to become bread? But Jesus looked the devil in the eye, and he said to him, It is written, You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, what's interesting to me is Jesus didn't say, You shall live by some of the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. No, he said, You shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus understood that the nature of inspiration meant that every word of the Bible had come from God Himself, and therefore it could be trusted as reliable and true. Come on, church. Amen. You you just go to the next chapter, Matthew chapter 5. It's our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Look what he said in verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away. From the law till all is fulfilled. Now you were, you were pretty well with me till I got to that jot and tittle. Eh? And you're thinking, what in the cat hair is a jot and a tittle? We don't talk in those terms anymore. Well, a jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle was the smallest stroke used in making a Hebrew letter. So Jesus was affirming the trustworthiness of even the smallest letters that make up the words that make up the Holy Scripture. Now, let's take our logic a step further. If God's Word is in... think it means a responsibility to be wise interpreters of Scripture. We are to rightly divide the Word of truth. And if we're going to take life or death positions based on the sheer authority of Scripture alone, we must make sure that we are reading it carefully and that we are interpreting it correctly. We just can't take a verse out of context and establish a rule or a standard or a conviction. We've got to make sure that we are rightly dividing the Word of God. Now, I can take the Bible and I can take verses out of context and I can make it say what I want it to say. But that is not rightly dividing the word of truth. For example, I can pull the verse out that Judas went and hung himself. And then I can say to you, go ye therefore and do likewise. (laughs) Now even though you'd like to say that to some people you know, (laughs) wouldn't you? That's not interpreting the scriptures correctly. So it means we have a responsibility to interpret the scriptures correctly. Secondly, once we do know what the Bible says and we're confident that we are interpreting it correctly, the truth of Scripture becomes the final word of authority in our life. This is the book by which we should live. Let me back up and ask this. 
What is it that determines our personal beliefs? What is it that determines my behavior? What is it that determines the decisions that we make? What is it that determines our actions? Is it our own personal preference? Is it just based on what I want or how I feel? No. Because your feelings are fickle. What is it based on? It's based on the Word of God. What is it that determines my beliefs, my behavior, my decisions, my actions? Is it what the United States government says? Is it what the United States Supreme Court decrees? No. It's what the Bible says. What determines my personal belief? Is it what the media and our cultural elite tell us is politically correct? Again, a thousand times, no. It's what the Bible says. Because listen to me, church, there are times when the truths of God's Word run counter to my own personal preferences. There are times when the truth of God's Word runs counter to the United States Supreme Court and to what is currently politically correct. But the message of the Bible is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it is authoritative. It is a solid rock in the midst of an ocean of uncertainty. And it is the rock by which we should build our life, our family, and this church. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. We need to work on this clapping thing, all right? We're, we're doing better. That brings me to the fourth truth about the Bible. It's indestructibility. Yeah? Heaven and earth will pass away. The opinions of the wise and foolish will come and go. Kings and courts will rise and fall. But the word of our God shall stand forever. In the days of the Roman Empire, the Roman authorities sought to find ways of crushing and stamping out Christianity forever. It was suggested that all the Christians of the world be rounded up and they be burned to death. But one spokesman in the Imperials, Imperials Council responded, It is no use to burn the Christians, for if you burn every Christian alive today and leave one single copy of their scriptures, the Christian church will spring up again tomorrow. You can't destroy it. Maybe you got your Bible in your hand. Why don't you just take a peek at it and think about this book? The Bible is one unit with complete harmony, even though it was written over a time period of 1,900 years. Over 40 different human authors wrote 66 different books. Yet there is only one moral standard found in the book. There is only one plan of salvation in the Word of God. There is only one world view in this book. 3,800 times this book claims to be the Word of God. And it is indestructible. Century follows century and the book is still here. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. 
Emperors decree its extermination. Atheists rise against it. Unbelievable great efforts being made. And it will evermore endure. It is indestructible. It is imperishable. As someone once wrote, Hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammers break, but God's anvil stands. <laughs> and that brings us back to our text for today. And to the subject of the power of God's word. If the Bible is the inspired word of God, it is inerrant and infallible. It is authoritative and it is indestructible. The net implication of all of that is that it's also powerful. That's my fifth statement about the word of God. It is powerful enough to change a person's life. Uh, let's read what Paul actually wrote here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 15. He's writing to this young preacher named Timothy, and he says, And that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Two really important lessons this passage teaches us about the power of God's Word. The first is this. It says that the Bible gives us all the information that we need to be saved. Now, despite what 57% of believers believe, Christians believe, and despite what universalism teaches and what the media wants you to think, not everybody's going to heaven. A lot of people who go to church every Sunday morning aren't going to make it through those pearly gates. There is a book in heaven called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Bible clearly says that only those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be able to get into heaven. You might say, well, how do you get your name in that book? There's only one way to do it. That is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The ABCs of how you go to heaven that we believe here at Kavanaugh Church. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe that it's only Jesus who can save you from your sins through his sacrificial death on Calvary's cross. And then C, you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And you know what? There's only one book in the world that tells us how to do that, and it's God's book. This book makes us wise unto salvation. So that's the first thing it teaches us. But secondly, this book also teaches us and gives us what we need for everyday life. It tells us, it gives us the doctrine for reproof and correction and instruction. That's what we need to grow into maturity. It equips us with everything God wants us to do on planet earth. Let me say it like this. It not only gives us wisdom to be saved... It teaches us how to do life. It's our roadmap. It's our instruction manual on life. So if you've got a problem, how many of you do? Because okay. life is full of them. When you think you got it all figured out, then the bottom falls out. You've got something brand new to deal with. You're not going to find the answer through Dr. Phil or Miss Oprah. It's not found in either one of our presidential candidates nor in the parties they represent. 
You can't find the answer to your problems by watching TV or reading the newspaper or even talking to a friend at work. The only way you're going to find real answers to the real problems you deal with is in God's Word. Because He teaches us how to live. The book guides us in how we should live. Let me close by telling you the power of God's Word through a story a guy named Ted Seymour. Ted grew up in a town just south of London, England. As a teenager, he was a, he was a rough kid, man. They called him a ruffian, and he, he hung out with a group of rowdy boys. They were a street gang. Back in 1953, Ted was 15 years old. An evangelist came to his town named Charlie Kingston. He was going to hold a tent revival meeting, an evangelistic crusade. So they set up this huge tent in a vacant lot, and they started this revival. Well, Ted and his buddies thought it'd be pretty cool to go to that revival meeting and go around the tent and pull up all the tent stakes. Because they knew if they pulled up all the tents, this sounds something like, I was going to say my dad, somebody I know would do when he was a boy, all right? They were going to watch the tent fall on everybody's head. But as they were pulling up these tent stakes, they got caught. And instead of marching these boys down to the police station, guess where they marched them? Right into that tent. And they made them sit down and listen to Charlie Kingston preach. Behind the stage were two big banners. On one banner it had the words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The other banner had the words of Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Charlie Kingston preached the sermon based on those two verses that night. And as he preached, this 15-year-old boy Ted Seymour fell under conviction. God started working in his heart. And he realized for the first time, you know what, God does love me. And Jesus did die for me. And yes, God has something better for my life than what I'm doing with it right now. And he came face to face with God that night. He had to make an eternal decision as to whether to accept or reject the Savior of the world. And that night, God changed his life. He came forward. He accepted Jesus. And Ted Seymour became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And he has traveled around the world telling others the good news of the gospel. You know what? That is the power of the Word of God. That's what God's Word can do. It can take a teenage gang member, give him peace, hope, and joy, and turn him into a godly man that has a passion for worldwide evangelism. Let me tell you something. If God did that for Ted Seymour, he can do it for you. The Apostle Paul once said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and it teaches us how to live life as well. That is the power of the gospel. Why don't you unleash the power of the gospel 
in your life today. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're going to do something that we do every Sunday here. We're going to give an invitation where I invite you to come to the altar and pray. Now, don't think it's, you know, I, I don't need to be going down there. What in the world are people going to think about me? Let me tell you, every one of us needs to come and pray at the altar today. All of us need to be down here. You know why? Because we all have problems. We all face issues and we all need God's help. That help is found in the Word of God. So why don't you come today and bring your problems and yeah, your pride and everything else and, and bring it before the Lord and say, God, I need your help. If you're here this morning and you realize that you're lost without Jesus and you have no hope, your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Hey, I invite you to come down here and pray with me. I'll show you from the Bible how you can be saved and know that you're going to heaven. For the rest of us, let's, let's come and pray and ask God to, to open up His Word to our life, to help us live life for Him and be the Christian He's called us to be. Heavenly Father, would you please move in everyone's heart. Help us to respond in faith and to come and pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed.